Good Monday morning to you. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The Alliance for True Democracy wins the unofficial referendum on electoral reform. And a huge majority of people say they would veto any substandard plan. BNP Paribas is preparing to be slapped with a $9 billion fine by the U.S. government. And billionaire Lee Cushing says inequality keeps him up at night. Here's a little tease of what's to come. More than 331,000 people, or 42.1%, voted in favor of the proposal put forward by the Alliance for True Democracy. That's our reporter Priscilla Ung. She will wrap things up for you in just a moment. And consider this. Growth in the United States was probably zero for the first half of the year. Even with the bounce back in Q2, you average the two quarters together and we're probably going to have a flat first half. Now, the data since then going into the second half of the year is looking enough, well enough for the Fed to still remain optimistic about the growth outlook. But it's starting to get cloudier with prices going up and wages remaining stagnant. So what does that mean for us out here in Hong Kong? We'll be discussing that with our guests this morning. Guests include Michael Every from Rabobank on Asian markets. Professor Moshi Cohen from Columbia University will be along to explain how best to reform the U.S. economy. And our international economics correspondent Barry Wood will be with us uh, to take a look at what to expect in the week ahead. Here's what you can expect from Asian markets in early trading today. In Australia, the ASX 200 is up a little less than one point in Seoul, the cost be moving up eight points. That's a pretty healthy gain of about a half of a percent. And looking at gold, $1,315, so not much change there. Oil prices down a bit. Oil now $113.10 a barrel. Well, our top story this morning, some 88% of you say that legislators should veto any any reform proposal that eventually gets put forward by the government here that doesn't meet international standards. In the unofficial referendum on the CE vote that was announced last night, the Alliance for True Democracy has won with 42% of the vote. More from our Priscilla Ung. More than 331,000 people, or 42.1%, had voted in favor of the proposal put forward by the Alliance for True Democracy, which calls for a three-truck nomination system that allows the nominating committee, general electorate, and political parties to nominate chief executive candidates. The convener of the alliance, Joseph Cheng, said he's very pleased with the outcome. Coming in second was the blueprint jointly put forward by the Scholarism and Federation of Students, which garnered 38.4% of the total votes. Their proposal states that candidates can run for the top job as long as they have the support of 1% of registered voters. The Secretary General of the Hong Kong Federation of Students, Chao Wing Hong, said there is a possibility that their proposal can be merged with that of the alliance. We would uh, sincerely uh, ask if uh, the, the alliance would accept the proposal or the formation of the nominated committee proposed by students. As the alliance, they did not have a concrete proposal for the nominating committee. So if there's a significant number of Hong Kong citizens vote for the student's proposal, maybe the alliance could take citizens' voice or their suggestion in combining or measuring to a proposal. The People Power proposal, meanwhile, received 10.4% of the votes. Its spokesperson, Christopher Lau, said his party will, from now on, do everything it can to support the alliance's proposal. 
In some other headlines from the weekend, Tencent Holdings agreed to buy a nearly 20% stake in 58.com. That is for $736 million. Tencent is is Asia's largest Internet company, and it continues to add to investments this year that include purchasing a big stake in the e-commerce website, JD.com. A couple of other headlines. The Guangzhou Party Secretary, Wang Qianlong, is under investigation. And the PBOC advisor, Chen Yulu, says China's economy economy is stabilizing. We'll discuss some of that with uh, with Michael Every coming up a little bit later. BNP Paribas will probably find out later today just how much it has to pay in penalties to U.S. authorities that following an investigation into the breaking of sanctions. Expectations are of a huge multi-billion dollar settlement, perhaps as high as $9 billion, which will force the bank to borrow and cut payments to investors. RTHK's Robert Kemp has more. The French bank is expected to plead guilty to a federal criminal charge and pay nearly $9 billion as part of a larger settlement with multiple enforcement authorities. American authorities are examining whether BNP Paribas evaded U.S. sanctions relating primarily to Sudan between 2002 and 2009 and whether it stripped identifying information from wire transfers so they could pass through the U.S. financial system without raising red flags. The bank has only set aside $1.1 billion for the fine, but told shareholders it could be far higher than that, meaning that it will probably have to lower its dividend and raise funds by selling billions of euros of bonds. BNP Paribas may also be suspended from converting foreign currencies to dollars on behalf of clients in some businesses for as long as a year. The bank has said it has improved control processes to make sure such mistakes do not occur again. We have a short trading week in Hong Kong this week with the holiday tomorrow and also on Wall Street with the Independence Day holiday on Friday. And we'll get a ton of numbers in the United States this week, the non-farm payrolls for June, the May trade deficit and an index on the services sector. The S&P 500 has gained 6% this year, but the economy has gone nowhere and the Fed may need to lower its growth targets. Even with the Fed coming into that June meeting and drastically marking down its 2014 growth forecast, it still remains too optimistic for the year. They're out of whack. They're out of whack for 2014. We think they're still overestimating the economy in 2015 and 2016 as well because supposedly we'll be going into a rising interest rate environment then as markets anticipate the first rate. Again, that's Ellen Zentner there from Morgan Stanley. Well, Asia's richest man, Li Ka-shing, says the wealth gap keeps him up at night. He's worried that falling levels of trust could become the new normal if not addressed. In a speech to students at Shantou University, Mr. Li called on the government to introduce new and flexible redistribution policies. He said technology and innovation can increase options, and he said it would be a crime against the future to not invest in education. And our first guest this morning is Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, and we'll be bringing in uh, Professor Moshi Cohen from Columbia University in just a few minutes. Uh, Barry, good day to you. Good morning to you, Brian. I, I wanted to run that little piece from Li Ka-shing because it's a, it's the sort of thing that is happening all over the world, the wealth gap, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I guess, in our discussion this morning. And uh, as you heard me mention there, we'll bring in uh, Professor Moshi Cohen in a few moments. Uh, I heard him on CNBC, and he had some interesting ideas about how to reform the U.S. economy, and uh, hopefully that would get at uh, the gap in uh, in the you know between the rich and poor, uh, but first let's get to some more mundane uh, ideas like um, what's happening this week. You heard me mention it's going to be a fairly busy week, even with the holiday, and we'll get the jobs 
Jobs are back to pre-crisis levels, uh, but um, why are people so insecure, if that's the case? <laughs> well, I think uh, you said it earlier. I mean, look at that uh, question of GDP growth. You're down almost uh, 3% at an annual rate in the, in the first quarter. Uh, that uh, second quarter is not going to be gangbusters. So, I mean, e- even, even if you have a 3% growth, I mean, you're, you're even. That's zero. So 2.5%, I think that's the reason that uh, people are feeling uh, angst. There just isn't enough growth in the economy, and wages are stagnant. Yes, and wages haven't really kept up either. Um, And now you're starting to face an environment where inflation may be picking up. That brings to mind stagflation. Um, We're not quite there yet, but is that a concern? Well, I think that's a long way off, Brian, and you and I might differ on that. But, uh, you you know, uh, we're not going to see any interest rate rises for the rest of 2014. I don't think that the inflation genie is anywhere close to being out of the bottle. We don't really see anything more than, you know, we're well below 2%, which is the Fed target. So, gee, maybe this could become an issue in late 2015 or 16, and I know it could happen quickly, but I just don't see any sign of it. Well, it sort of depends which number you look at. The one that the Fed looks at, the PCE deflator, is only at 1.6, but some of the other measures are kind of up there around 2%. Uh, does it feel on the ground for you as a consumer that prices are going up or, or not so much? No, not so much is the answer, because uh, even with this problem in Iraq and uh, gas prices really being at a five-year high, that is not a particular problem. It isn't discouraging driving. And that's been the one that's been in the news. So fuel prices are pretty steady over the last three or four months. And no spike is anticipated, even with Iraq. And there'd have to be another geopolitical event to really send them into some kind of panic mode. In terms of housing, we're seeing a lot of hot housing markets. That is the case in certainly the Northeast. It's the case in Chicago, Atlanta. Uh, some West Coast cities, of course, but it's not in most of the industrial Middle West. So autos are doing well. You know, I think it's a mixed bag. I, I just don't see that uh, there's any concern about inflation moving up, and I don't think that uh, the job growth figures are enough to make people really rush out and buy. Yes, which uh, brings to mind hawkish comments from uh, the Fed president in St. Louis, James Bullard, last week. Of course, you also got some pretty dovish comments from William Dudley, the uh, uh, the Fed New York president, uh, who seemed to say that even the middle of next year may be a little early. Um, is this the right environment to be talking about raising interest rates? Well, I don't think it is. I think that uh, it is uh, not the environment to discuss rising interest rates. We can talk about tapering, and I think the Fed has made up his mind, and there'll have to be some kind of event that would cause them to diminish from their reduction of of asset purchases. But that's quite a different thing than talking about raising rates. And I don't think rates are going anywhere. Do you think the markets will not handle well when the Fed eventually does, in an official uh, nod, start to talk about the timing for rates? Because I think they won't want to catch people off guard. So at some point, when you get towards the end of tapering, they'll probably start talking about it. What then? Well, I think you're onto something there, Brian, because, uh, you know, this is an economy that is on life support. It's been on life support for five years, and this is not a normal economy. So uh, 
you sort of get used to this kind of uh, drug that has been administered. And I think you're onto something. It could be that when tapering ends and life support is withheld by the Federal Reserve, there could be a reaction. And don't forget, we have not had a 10% correction in equity prices for two years. That is unusual. Yeah, everybody, everybody seems thinks to... Go ahead. A correction is around the corner, but it hasn't arrived. So maybe when tapering is over, maybe that's when it comes. You just have to chuckle a little bit because everybody's calling for a correction as though they want one to come. And then when you go down about 3 or 4% or 5%, as we saw earlier this year, or when you see the big sell-off in, uh, in the high-tech arena, in biotech and, and Internet companies, then people start getting really nervous and Fed governors start coming out and talking about how <laughs> rates won't be, uh, won't be going up for a long time. Anyway, let, let's, um, let's welcome uh, uh, Professor Moshi Cohen from Columbia. University School of Business to the program. Professor Cohen, thank you for joining us. I hope we have you with us there on the line. Let me throw the first question out. And if you um, if you are listening to me, what at the moment is wrong with the U.S. economy? So we don't have Professor Cohen. So Barry, let me let me put it to you. Um, you know, you you were you were more positive on the U.S. economy um, in in prior discussions, um, and yeah. you know, you were. I challenged you a little bit last week on the on the quality of the housing recovery, um, but you you rightly said that the housing numbers would be getting better, and they weren't too bad in the past week. Uh, and also, auto numbers are good, but there's still this big pall hanging. over. Over. And I guess it has to do with some longer term uh, kind of uh, structural problems that, that you see with jobs and and with, um, you know, earnings and, and wages and that. But what is the pall that's hanging over the economy? Well, I think, again, it is, in fact, that uh, the economy is on life support and this uh, housing is not back to normal. Wages are stagnant. Wages are stagnant. People are beginning to make vacation plans, as they did maybe five years ago. But, you know, driving on the U.S. highway is still well below levels of 2007. So, you know, things are not back to normal here. But when you say, I'm an optimist, well, that has to do with the fact that uh, there are a lot of uh, inexplicable things that seem to go on in this economy. Take General Motors, Brian. Who would have thought that this new woman who comes in to head General Motors and then instantly has to have this huge recall, which is going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars, and yet people are not staying away from General Motors showrooms. General Motors sales are holding up remarkably well. Now, I can't explain that. So there is, you know, maybe it's the fact that cars are wearing out, but nonetheless, they didn't have to go into GM showrooms, and people still are. All right. Now, I believe we do have Professor Cohen with us. Uh, this is Professor Moshe Cohen from Columbia University in the School of Business there. Professor Cohen, good day to you. Uh, good day to you. Yeah. Thanks, for yeah, thanks for joining us on a Sunday. Uh, Barry Wood, uh, the other guest on the program, joins us every Monday morning here. So Sunday night there. But it's good to have you on the program. I mentioned in a short email to you that I found your comments kind of interesting on a CNBC slot uh, a while back uh, about reform of the U.S. economy. Barry and I have just been talking about what's wrong with with current conditions. Um, and I, I know that um, you have some comments about some obvious things that should be done. Tell our audience here in Hong Kong what some of those obvious things are. Well, I think the problem is that there, there's too much of a focus on 
on uh, on issues that are not going to have the capability of fixing the structural problems in the economy. Like so monetary, like are, are you saying monetary policy is one of them? I'm saying this 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 preoccupation, this obsession with the Fed, this uh, the way discussions are being uh, handled regarding minimum wage and all these other issues that are capturing the headlines. The problem is is that the obvious questions have to be asked. The first obvious question is. What is wrong with the American economy? What is going wrong? What is the problem? Very basic questions, right? If you ask a basic question of why are there recessions? Why are there business cycles? What is the problem? What is the underlying problem? And the answer to that question or the structural problem that exists is that the skill sets in the American economy have uh, either atrophied due to the recession. Many people are out of work for a long period of time. And some of them have been obviated by technology, where technological progress renders lots of jobs, traditional jobs, unnecessary. So the challenge is getting the workforce back to work in productive jobs. And once we understand that that is the, the problem or the question or the challenge, then the discussions at least can can lead towards what can, may or may not be a solution to that structural problem. Okay, let's say so you're right. Yeah, let, let, let's say you're right. Is it a massive infusion of investment then that corrects that? Or is it adopting more of a German-style kind of apprenticeship program, retraining of workers and that sort of thing? Well, I think three things need to be done. Three things need to be done. Firstly, when, just to answer your point quickly before I say what they are, you know, when you, when you criticize the lack of investment, again, you want to ask the question of why is there not investment? Firms that are, are there to invest. Firms are incentivized to invest. So, again, the reason that there's no investment is not because it's hard to borrow. Borrowing costs are low. It's because of that structural problem that, that I'm talking about. So three things need to be done. Firstly, uh, we need to, to, to create incentives and fertile ground for to have a major revolution in alternative energy production. Because alternative energy production, I'm not just talking about fracking. Again, that's received too much attention. I mean new coal technologies, coal to liquid, gasified coal, uh, biofuels. There are lots of, techno of technologies that are proven that are out there that aren't taken to commercial production, aren't even on the exploration level, but definitely not on the downstream level. And, and the reason is that these are in type of investments are exactly the type of investments that we'd like. They create a lot of jobs and they produce a lot of profit. But they take a couple years to materialize. And investors in the U.S. economy like to see things happening quickly, even okay. if it's not profits, right? We like investing in technology where people might put billions of dollars in a Twitter, even though Twitter isn't making profits, but people feel like it's sexy and something's happening and it's becoming more used. Whereas if I go out and build a plant that will create tons of jobs and produce cleaner, environmental, fr environmentally friendly and economically profitable energy, going to take two or three years and they aren't going to be as exciting and so it's harder to get that going okay. there's regulations there's licensing and so what we want to do is be a hub for energy and that allows traditional jobs like manufacturing and construction and a lot of blue-collar jobs that have been uh destroyed over the course of the past few years okay. to be repurposed with training. So okay, Professor, yeah, it, it, it's radio, so we need net talk, so that's a very good first point. Get to the other two now? The other two are quicker. So the, 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 <laughs> the second one is, like you said, an education reform. Education reform, again, has to be technology, right? We want to create clear goals. There should be a computer screen in front of every student, and we should have adaptive technological modules that allow for a reform of education. It's not just about spending more. It's about leveraging technology to generate better outcomes both for K-12 students as well as for 
retraining. And the third thing, which I think is uh, was going on with, uh, when I got on, is investment in infrastructure. When there's public spending, investing in infrastructure is low-hanging fruit because the infrastructure in this country is rapidly deteriorating. Okay. Those three things can be done immediately and will help a lot with solving that problem. Barry, why uh, can't we do those things, or do you see any lack of consensus on trying to achieve those goals? Well, I'm certainly in agreement with what, uh, what Mr. Cohen said about uh, regulation. But in um, education, I think we're pouring a lot of money into technology there. And on infrastructure, yeah, there's probably a lot more that needs to be done. But I would pose the question on alternative energy to you, Mr. Cohen. The fact is there are all kinds of incentives on solar power and on uh, wind power. And uh, those are in effect at the state and federal level. The, the incentives are in effect. So Elon Musk was on, was on CNBC, did an interview about his Solar City, uh, uh, the company, right? And they asked him exactly that question. Are you going to list? And he said, well, here's the problem. The problem is that I can't get capital flows because the investment is going to take too long to materialize. We become obsessed with specific forms of alternative energy instead of creating an environment where you set the environmental standard, you set the carbon tax, you set the emissions, and watch technology deliver for you. And regulations are ineffective. There's no, there's no exploration on federal land. Licensing is tough. These deals are really hard to, to close, and you want to create fertile ground for them to happen. This is a Hong Kong show. If you look at what's happening in China, there are hundreds of, of exploration projects. There's massive investment in alternative energy because the regulatory framework is more friendly for that. If we could learn from what, what's happening over there, uh, we can really start taking advantage of our natural resources and repurpose a lot of this uh, labor force on the sidelines. Professor, would you do away with quarterly reporting? No, and the reason I ask that is, is it's part of the short-term focus. I mean, Elon Musk is talking about that very thing, the point that you make that, you know, if you, if you go public, then you're really stuck in this, in this um, environment where you've got to report profits every, every quarter. And, you know, investors don't understand if you look too long-term. Yeah, so I don't think it's about reporting. It's about the horizons, and, and it's, about, it's a deeper question of how incentives are structured uh, in the financial industry, which is still a problem. People think very short-term. They think quarter report to quarter report. They think bonuses of this year. They think incentive pay of this year. It's much harder to get investors in general to be able to stomach a couple years of waiting. But I think the, the, the interesting juxtaposition to technology is that people are doing this for these technology firms where it's totally not clear that profits will ever come, but they're more sexy. There's something happening all the time. I don't want to remove transparency. I, I don't want to remove transparency. I think it's about the climate and the challenges okay. to the climate that we need to overcome. All right. Unfortunately, we lost you a couple of times. Took a long time to get you on, and I have to cut it short now because you've got one more guest in only three, four minutes. But thank you for joining us here on Radio 3 in Hong Kong. That's Professor Moshi Cohen from Columbia University School of Business. And Barry, thanks very much. Out of time. We'll catch you next week. Barry Wood is our international economics correspondent. <laughs> Michael Every joins us now, Head of Financial Markets Research for the Asia-Pacific at Rabobank. Michael, good morning. Good morning. And thanks for waiting patiently. Um, what's on your mind this morning as we look at the week ahead? Well, uh, I think basically for some of us it's the World Cup uh, and some very late nights here in Hong Kong trying that, to recover from the football. That's not uh, very businessy, is it? Uh, it's not, but it does have an influence, particularly if all your workers haven't got enough sleep and they're trying <laughs> to uh, press ahead uh, with a day's work, as uh, some people around myself look as if they've been doing. Um, 
No, basically it's going to be a slightly unusual week this week because we have the usual slew of data. But in the U.S., because of the timing of the July 4th holiday, we're going to be seeing that key employment report on the Thursday rather than the Friday. And that does uh, disrupt the usual flow of the, of the week's trading somewhat. It's going to bring forward the excitement by 24 hours. In terms of uh, events to trade off of, is there anything uh, this week that you'd particularly be nervous about? I, I, I say this because tomorrow we, we could have an enormous um, turnout. I mean, if you look at the turnout of the civil referendum here, you know, you had almost 800,000 people voting and um, they're calling for about 100,000 tomorrow, but it could be much more, maybe as many as 2003. Is that something that will that will perplex the business community or will they cheer it? Um, well, I think we've already seen a message from some big businesses saying that they don't support that kind of activity. Um, I don't think it's going to have too much of a, of, a, of a major market impact, however. It will generate press. I'm sure it will generate headlines. But I don't think it's going to move markets too much by itself. And what will move markets this week? Well, I think we've got two developments. First of all, as I said, we've got the usual slew of data where we find out how global manufacturing is doing, and then we find out what the U.S. employment outlook looks like on Thursday. But in the background, of course, we are worried about what's going on in Iraq um, with the, the to and fro of the, of the battling there and what impact they, that may have on oil prices because uh, higher energy costs is something that the, the emerging markets in particular really couldn't handle very well now. Is um, a oil price at one hundred and thirteen dollars having an impact, or are you talking about if it goes to like one twenty? Uh, well, one twenty would be a very worrying figure. I think at one thirteen we're just starting to get nervous, but if we do get to one twenty, we're going to be very, very nervous. What about some of this M and A activity we saw over the weekend? Ten cent agreeing to buy nearly twenty percent of fifty eight dot com. That's a lot of money, almost seven hundred and fifty million U S dollars. Uh, is that a big deal? Well, that is a big deal, and I think we're continuing to see more and more activity like that, uh, and we probably will do into the second half of the year, too. We still have abundant global liquidity. There's absolutely no shortage of cash for these kinds of deals to get done. So I think more will get done. But ultimately, when you look at the way the market is trading at the moment, with equities extremely strong, but bond markets trading as if we're heading for a, a cyclical slowdown ahead rather than a recovery, Ultimately, that's going to be resolved one way or another. Uh, and when it does, that will tell you what happens to M&A activity. Okay, I know you've got to go. You've got a meeting at 8.30, so we'll say sayonara. Thank you very much, Michael. Michael Every, head of financial markets research for the Asia-Pacific at Rabobank here in Hong Kong. Well, let's take a look at markets here as we get ready to go out for the day. Uh, looking at um, kind of a mixed bag. Um, Seoul, slightly higher, up about seven points. In Australia, we see the market kind of flattish there. And also, not too much, but a little bit of green numbers in Japan. I haven't told you about currencies this morning. The dollar-yen virtually unchanged. Dollar worth 101.45 Japanese yen. The euro now $1.36 and the pound sterling 13 Hong Kong dollars and 20 cents. When you hear that, you know the program's about done for the day. Briefly in the weather, mainly cloudy, a few showers, hot and 32 as the maximum today. We'll see you tomorrow. We won't see you tomorrow because of the holiday, but we'll be back on Wednesday. For the moment, it's 8.30, and we get the latest in news now. Here's Samantha Butler.
The convener of the Executive Council, W.K. Lamb, says it'll be a real test for the government to come up with a political reform proposal that will satisfy the public while complying with the basic law. He was speaking to RTHK this morning after a 10-day unofficial referendum on the issue ended. Over 787,000 people cast their ballots on ways of choosing the chief executive by public nomination. The Central and SAR governments had already ruled this method out, saying it goes against the basic law. Mr Lamb called the voter turnout significant, saying their voices must be heard, but it would not be easy for the government to find consensus. The rule of the game is such that everything we do, I mean the government going to do, has to be within the confine of the basic law. So it's going to be a test of the government's wisdom on how to, on the one hand, uh, make a proposal that obviously should listen to the voice of this sizable group, but then on the other hand must be within the limit allowed by the basic law. North Korea has confirmed its second missile test in recent days with leader Kim Jong-un overseeing the drill just days before President Xi Jinping visits South Korea. The South Korean military said yesterday's test was of two short-range Scud missiles with a range of 500 kilometres. The two latest tests come ahead of President Xi's visit to Seoul for talks with South Korean President Park Geun-hye. China is North Korea's sole major ally and key economic benefactor and the fact that Mr Xi is visiting Seoul before Pyongyang 